everybody. Thanks for listening to Marriage Therapy Radio. I'm Zach. I'm here with Laura. And we're also here with Lori. It's a very cool conversation. Stick around. How, how, you, how you feeling? What do you mean? Oh, I feel about a million feet tall. Why? And wide. Because I'm famous. <laughs> um, you made we're, me famous. We're YouTube famous now. We are um, YouTube That famous. was really fun. So if you're joining us uh, or you don't know what we're talking about, um, Laura and I had the uh, opportunity about a month and a half ago to sit down with a couple of guys from Vanity Fair and talk a little bit about um, our, our perception of Disney films. And mm-hmm. we were, it was weird. We were in our own offices and I was like in a cave. My, my lighting was terrible, but they ended up putting <laughs> together is. this really beautiful video that I'm really proud of. I'm excited about it. It's on uh, YouTube, but um, we've been, uh, we've been trading. Uh, the two of us have been trading. Um, just watching the numbers go up and the well, comments. And, and the text, right? Like, I can't believe you said this. Or how about when you went to this, like uh, the, the whole thing about what's it, Le Poisson being my go-to karaoke song. I'm so glad. So, the, I mean, we were in front of the camera for about five hours and yeah. we got a 20 minute video. So yeah. what, what this is, is if you go to YouTube, type in YouTube, Vanity Fair, Laura Heck, Zach Brittle. And you're going to find a video. So you actually get to see our faces and see how our dynamic is. Um, I think I'm a little more smiley on the video than I normally would be. Oh well, yeah, smiley. you're you're good at that. You you uh, you're good at that. Yeah, but um, they said I look like Elsa. The comment. I know. I know. Fun. I'm just glad nobody commented on what I looked like. They're like, <laughs> other than being in love with you, and then multiple people gave you the thumbs up, which I think means that other people are also in love with Zach Brittle. Um. Well. Uh. Hey, so today's pretty cool. We, you guys, we have a guest and. Um, uh, we ju- actually just finished talking to her, which, and I'm, I'm always in awe of really, really smart people, but, um, yeah. So <laughs> you're in awe of me. Yeah. No. So we're super excited to have Dr. Lori Brado joining us today on the podcast. I wanted to tell you who she is. She has such a lengthy bio because this woman is a powerhouse and, uh, holds many positions. So bear with me as I, I just, impress you with all of the things that she has going on. So Dr. Brado is a professor in the UBC Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and a registered psychologist in Vancouver. She's the executive director of the Women's Health Research Institute of BC located at BC's Women's Hospital. Dr. Brado holds a Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health. She's the director of the UBC Sexual Health Laboratory where research primarily focuses on developing and testing, psychological, and mindfulness-based interventions for women and sexual desire and arousal difficulties and women with chronic genital pain. Dr. Brado is an associate editor for the Archives of Sexual Behavior, and she has more than 170 peer-reviewed publications and is frequently featured in the media on topics related to sexuality. So her book is what brought uh, her to us. It was something that I read on my way to uh, Hawaii a few months ago, Better Sex Through My mindfulness and how women can cultivate desire. Uh, And it's a trade book of her research demonstrating the benefits of mindfulness for women's sexual concerns. The story is that I was on my way to Hawaii, I want to say like in February. And um, 
I started just searching through books. Remember that I when you can read. like go places? Remember that? I know. Remember back yeah, then? I remember. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I came back from Hawaii with coronavirus. But anyway, um, and I was just so struck by this book that I found. And I kind of just happened upon it because I was searching for books to read, um, to understand sexual desire, women's sexual desire. And I came across this book that Lori wrote. And it's Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. And... Um, it just kind of blew me away. So I started to stalk Lori online and asked if she would be on the podcast. And holy moly, I am so, so glad that we got her to come on and share 30 minutes of her time with us because this woman is brilliant and is leading a team of researchers and, you know, uh, just educating the world on women's sexual health and sexual desire and mindfulness. And you guys are going to enjoy this, this listen. So I'm really excited to have her on. Very cool. Yeah. No, I found the conversation very hopeful. Um, that was, that's the thing that I took away. Hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think she really shared some resources too for us to be able to, uh, like for me, I take in most of my information through social media because <laughs> that's the way people people communicate. And she has a hashtag uh, debunking desire so that you can sort of track the information that they're putting out there to the masses, which I thought was really a cool way to be able to get that, that info um, at your fingertips. So we'll bring Lori on and hear what she has to say. Right on. Let's get to it. Where in Canada are you? <laughs> West Coast, Vancouver. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're really close. Mm-hmm. And she has, we're on Zoom. And the fun part about Zoom is now you can have those virtual backgrounds and you have a virtual background that is clearly the Pacific Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I lived um, on UBC's campus. Oh, wow. Oh, it's As a child. Bad. It was mm. It's beautiful. My mom went to Vancouver School of Theology. And so I lived there as a child. Amazing. It's, it was amazing. Yeah. It's, it's changed a little bit since those days. It's now an entire city, UBC city. No way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was very, um, I call it under supervised at the age of seven. <laughs> I used to collect pop cans on the university or soda cans and, um, and turn them in for five cents. I was, I was literally like an eight-year-old millionaire. I just, <laughs> I rocked it. Um, so you're in Vancouver, but you spent, um, some time in Seattle, right? You're at UW for a minute. I did. Yeah. A short minute, about three years, yeah. um, at a really pivotal time in my training, uh, at the, and at the start of my kind of formal academic career, um, and still have some, you know, in addition to fabulous memories of living in Seattle, but some great collaborators still there too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So um, we've already sort of given the formal introduction, but our audience is, um, if they're anything like us, if they're our tribe, they want to know more about you a little <laughs> bit more personally. So I want to know your the, the best, most fun thing that you have done in the last six weeks in the midst of Corona. Anything? You said you have a kid. Do you have one, two? I mean, how many... I've, I have 18 kids. No, just kidding. Three, (laughs) three three kids. Um, probably the most fun thing that we've done is, um, as a family, lots of downhill mountain biking. And we tend to, we've never done that as a family before. It's always, you know, the competitive uh, go on their own and then the less competitive do the street riding, but we've done a lot of that as a family. So So one of your children is 10. Yeah. And he's right beside me right now. And the other two are 13 and 15. Okay. 
Yeah. That's great. He's being so quiet. Yeah. We've been trying to find fun ways to just spice up how to, how to be in indoors and then also outdoors. I just hosted a bingo game for my kids. Um, my, I have a five-year-old for my kids pre-K class and, uh, and it was really fun. We just finished up right before I hopped on with you guys. And it's just really cute to see the kids connecting. Never mind the feat of getting five-year-olds onto a page at the same time. So kudos. Yeah, you never get a break because all the parents have to sit next to the kids and just keep directing them through. There's just never, I just haven't had a break. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I wanted to tell a story that I was on an airplane. I think I emailed you about this, Lori, when I first started to stalk you a little bit. Um, I was on an airplane headed to Hawaii and I downloaded Blinkist. And I don't know if you know what that is, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the version of reading that I can do um, because I am a little ADD and I like to read nine books at the same time and I never finish them. And I figured, let me try this out. And I came across your book and was just thinking, this is so cool. I love everything sex and intimacy related. And, um, and then I stalked you and, and mm-hmm. wanted you to come on the podcast so that you could share your findings, your research. And m- I think more importantly, I'm really interested in giving, hearing, having our audience here really um, applicable tactile exercises and techniques that they can use. So I guess my first question is, like, where did this book come from? Why write a book? And it, is this your first book? Have you written others? Yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, great questions. And and Blinkist is probably one of my my favorite podcasts. Uh, cool. It's it's fantastic. Awesome. So um, as a researcher, I've I've been studying mindfulness for sexual concerns since I was at the University of Washington in Seattle. Started that research in about two thousand and two, um, and over the years, we um, found quite a bit of evidence that mindfulness, which essentially is a set of skills where one practices present moment, non-judgmental awareness. Um, So it's fairly structured. um, And there's a series of exercises over a period of weeks that um, individuals are encouraged to to practice through on on their own. And so over the years, we've adapted mindfulness-based exercises to different populations of people with sexual concerns, mostly women, though not only. So when women uh, who were survivors of cancer who had great difficulty feeling sexual arousal in their body because of mm. their chemotherapy and radiation therapy and surgeries um, and the host of psychosocial issues, uh, sequelae from their cancer, changes in body image, mood, stress, et cetera. Um, that was the first population we started with. And, and we found that mindfulness um, was very helpful for helping them to become much more aware of sexual arousal in their body. And in fact, um, most of the participants told us that they were feeling sexual sensations for the first time in a long time. Wow. Wow. So did mindfulness create the sensations? Probably not, but it really helped them to notice the sensations. And because we know the brain and body communicate with one another in a feedback loop, um, it's likely the case that through that focusing, Mm-hmm. that it actually did increase the the actual sensations. So we were we were pretty um, reassured by what the participants told us that we then 
took that intervention and brought it out to many other groups of people with sexual related issues. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was about 2009 that um, I was uh, the feature of a cover story in the New York Times magazine and um, talking about, talking about our, our, (laughs) talking about our work. Um, And literally the next day I had, um, 22 emails from different publishers saying (sighs) you got to write about this mindfulness and sex. Um, by the way, it's nothing, it's not new. Mindfulness has been around for about 4,000 years. Yeah. Um, But you know, we just adapted it to this population. It's not, um, it's not, uh, Laura is a, I mean, Laura is an all things sex person. I'm probably more of an all things mind person. And I don't mean that in a, I don't mean that in a sketchy way. I mean, like that's a place of real interest for her. And for me, I'm probably more in the head. Yeah. Um, and just, just because I think this question is floating out there in the universe, what if I'm not a Buddhist or new agey Mm -hmm. or, um, or what if I've got a little bit of ADHD and I just don't want to even think about the, 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 what's required, the skills that are required for mindfulness. Like before we go to sex, like talk to me about that just for a second. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I really love about mindfulness, which is, um, kind of a secular version of meditation. It's been Mm -hmm. around since, um, you know, late 1970s. So it doesn't require any particular Buddhist bent or religious affiliation whatsoever. And the the language has been so um, simplified that it, it is so accessible to absolutely everyone, regardless of a history of practicing yoga or the extent to which you have your own kind of personal mindfulness practice. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is there's actually been a lot of research using mindfulness in folks with attention issues like ADHD and other things. Um, and uh, there have been some head-to-head trials comparing mindfulness to standard of care medications, et cetera. Mm. It is powerful. Um, and uh, so whenever I hear um, skepticism from folks, you know, I, I can't do mindfulness. It takes too much time. Yeah. Or I tried a yoga class and I hated it. Um, I'm really reassured by the science, which tells us it doesn't matter <laughs> because mm-hmm. it works. Yes, it requires effort. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's simple, but not easy. The practice is simple, but the implementation is not easy because it does require some discipline. I'm curious, what are you seeing as far as um, just working with the general population, imagining our listeners, what sorts of sexual dysfunction or issues or problems are they encountering or pain points is my favorite word. What Hmm. pain points are, is the general population experiencing around sex and how are you working with mindfulness to be able to ease that pain? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there are lots of different pain points when it comes to sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. So my, my main interest is in low desire, which is lack yes. of interest in sex or absent motivation for sex. Um, and that often expresses itself in a relationship with discrepant desire. So, you know, one person has um, relatively higher desire than the other person. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really common. The big population studies find that about a third of people um, in in stable long-term relationships um, really suffer when it comes to low desire or discrepant desire. Mm-hmm. So that's been the main uh, type of sexual issue that we've we've um, uh, adapted and tested mindfulness-based approaches with, both in women and in men. Um, but we've also uh, um, applied it and found it to be very, very effective for genital pain, genital pain mm-hmm. in women, which is also mm. very common. But one in five women will have um, uh, vulvodynia, which is chronic distressing 
um, very, very pain, pain with penetration. So right at the vulva and vagina, not just from sex, but from, you know, pap smears and even the seam on your, your jeans can elicit that pain. Uh, So we we finished last year, a big randomized trial comparing mindfulness to another standard of practice and found mindfulness to be more effective. And the um, benefits really persisted even up to a year later. Wow. So um, for the, I think, I mean, we often talk about a mismatch between sexual desire where you have one partner that's low sexual desire. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like, what it might show up like in a relationship for our listeners that are trying to figure out, well, am I low sexual desire? I mean, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it, it typically shows up in your, in your therapy office mm-hmm. um, with uh, one person saying, you know, my desire is too low. Or the other person saying her or his (laughs) desire is too low. So there's always the kind of implication that among this discrepancy, it's the person with the lower that's the one with the problem. Yeah. And and it's really important to ask the question, well, what about the relatively higher desire person? Maybe their desire is too high. Mm. Um, Because if the lower desire person was in a relationship with someone with comparable level, it would not be a problem. So that, that makes it really important that when someone shows up and talks about, you know, I've lost interest in sex, I'm not motivated, um, that you kind of take a relational perspective on it and find out, uh, you know, does, does the other person maybe have unrealistic expectations around totally. their desire? Um, or is their understanding of sexual desire and sexual behavior kind of fed by societal stereotypes and, um, and lack of information about how sexual desire actually looks like in a, in a longer term relationship. Yeah. yeah I, was, I, I would say that the, um, the pain is in the gap. And what yeah. I mean by that is like, you know, you might have somebody who thinks that, that, that whatever they want, whatever their expectation is, it's up here and their experience is down here and whatever the space is in the middle is the, is the pain point. Yeah. And so, it, um, I think you're, I think you're spot on. Like sometimes we need to raise the experience and sometimes we need to lower the expectation. Right. Um, right. So, so I do a little bit of both, obviously. Yeah. I'm curious about what are some techniques, some mindfulness techniques, or maybe just one, your favorite one, something super easy that our listeners can start to work or practice on that might be able to connect with where their desire is at with a hope that they could increase desire. Yeah. So definitely the body scan is my favorite and I can describe it briefly. So uh, the body scan again has been, uh, it's not anything new. It's been used in different populations for 40 plus years, but essentially it involves um, scanning your, your body and asking yourself, what do I feel in that area? And by feel, it means what, what physical sensations do you notice? Temperature, texture, pressure, looseness, tightness, not, I like that, or that part of my body reminds me of, you know, mm. um, riding my bike, et cetera. So not the labeling mm-hmm. and not the kind of evaluating those parts as good or bad, but really at a bare sensation level. So um, body scans, there's lots of um, available ones on YouTube or through different apps. They can range in length from five minutes to as long as you would like. In our own research, we have... Um, Uh, In our groups, we run about 30-minute body scans, and then we encourage our participants to practice this at home. Now, um, you can kind of ramp up a body scan and adapt it to sexuality, um, and we've also done this in our research and in our groups by first inviting people to use some kind of a sexual tool 
that excites mm-hmm. their arousal. Mm-hmm. So brief use of a vibrator, brief uh, watching or reading of erotica, mm-hmm. uh, brief imagery of a, of a fantasy so that you have that kind of automatic um, increase in sexual arousal. Again, very mm-hmm. brief. And then you shift to doing a body scan. So the idea being that by first priming the body with arousal and then doing a body scan does the mind become more attuned to subtle sensations in arousal as they're happening? And it turns out we've actually tested that manipulation um, that it does work. It works to increase both arousal and desire. So I really like the kind of pairing of those two, the sexual, the sexual aid plus the body scan. So that's interesting because I'm imagining if you have, let's say a before and after you have one group and I don't know the study, but I'm imagining you have like this control group where they're using a brief stimulation uh, with a vibrator, reading an erotic novel or whatever it might be. And then asked to maybe say, how aroused are you on a scale of one to 10? How aroused do you feel? And I'm thinking that that group without the mindfulness would probably have a lower number of, you know, maybe a two or a three, but then if you were to have that second group after the body scan, where they're able to connect their brain to their body would probably then rate themselves on a higher. Is that accurate? Yeah, we actually did a very similar study to I that. Think and maybe it's because they it. read. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I'm citing your actual research here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you know, there's a, there's kind of an interesting phenomenon that underlies that that's, um, bit more of a feature for women than it is for men. Um, and that, that, that is the, uh, what scientists call discordance. And what that means is that women are often not aware of when their body is aroused. So they could be watching a film, something like a vaginal probe, which measures the body's response to arousal can be indicating very high levels of physical arousal. And yet she might be saying, I don't feel anything or I feel turned off. So you can kind of have this discordance between what the body is doing, and what the mind is doing. Um, and essentially what mindfulness does, and we've tested this as well, using that kind of a setting, is it helps the brain and the body become more in alignment so that when the body shows signs of arousal, the mind notices it and in turn becomes more aroused. That is Brilliant. And now I remember why I reached out to you because I think it was that that I read and was like, this is the coolest thing. Um, So if you're doing a body scan, uh, is this something that you recommend if nobody, if, if they've never heard of a body scan before, and maybe they're just like lying in bed, they're by themselves, do you recommend that they do a body scan, maybe practicing that for the first time by themselves? Yeah, we absolutely. And especially before you kind of bring this into your sex life or the yeah. kind of sexual context is we usually recommend at least a few weeks of um, pretty regular practice of mindfulness. So maybe doing a body scan a few times a week, again, totally um, on your own, not in the sexual situation yeah. um, so that you can kind of feel out what, what is that like? What is it like to get, have my mind get distracted and then pull it back onto the body sensations. Um, and then after a few weeks, then pair it with, uh, the sexual aid where you're first doing again, brief. And the reason I I keep emphasizing brief, um, is, uh, we, we actually want to elicit just kind of low levels of arousal so that the Mm -hmm. brain actually does have to work at tuning into that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Zach, do you have any um, any questions that pop up for you? Otherwise, I have a million and I'm just going <laughs> to I'm going to steal Lori's attention. You're welcome to it. Yeah, I know I have questions, that, but I'm trying not to interrupt because it's all gold, right? 
Yeah, it really is. I, I will say that I love how Canadian you are. It's like we're we're gonna talk about things and it's um, a boot, and a boot thing. And maybe eat some pasta and drive a Mazda. Maple syrup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can smack them anytime a virtual smack. <laughs> I do it all the time. Canadians I, uh, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. We um we that this is a fun story that you'll love. Both of you will love this story. We convinced uh, our kids that syrup was pronounced syrup. <laughs> for about six months. <laughs> so they, we corrected them all the time. It's they can get some syrup. No, no guys, it's syrup. And they were maybe eight and four at the time, but, um, fine. Anyway. I mean, it's just low level child abuse. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be paying for it in therapy for the next 30 years. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Um, I love that the forward of your book. So just so people are who are listening, if they're curious to about this book, it's called Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. And I hear this question from women all the time, which is basically they feel broken. They feel like they've lost any ability and they're just searching for something that could potentially close the gap and, mm-hmm. and show up in their relationship the way they want to show up, the way their partner wants to show up. Um, but the forward was written by Emily Nagoski, which is one of mm-hmm. our favorite researchers that's out there promoting and using her mouthpiece to just teach, 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 and does it in such an approachable way. So uh, that's a big, big win for you to get a forward by Emily. Yeah, Emily is great. And I mean, what I love about her is um, she she has a beautiful way of taking the science and really distilling it down to, to bite-sized pieces that are very accessible. Um, so, you know, as a, as, a, as a researcher, oftentimes my work gets buried into medical journals um, and hence the importance of the book. And that's really why I wrote the book is yeah. because I knew that no one was reading, you know, my 150 journal articles <laughs> but if you can write it in a book in an accessible way um, that's um, friendly and, and usable, uh, that people will use it. And ultimately, that's why we're doing the research is to is to uh, develop evidence based strategies that can actually help people have, yeah. have healthier sex lives. Yeah. Tell me about this. We who is the we that you're talking about? And what's the mission? What's what are you? Yeah. Doing right so, um, you know, absolutely do not work alone. I have a team of students and and undergrads, postdocs, clinician scientists that I work with. Um, I'm director of the UBC Sexual Health Research, which is at the University of British Columbia. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also, um, you know, in addition to doing the science, we're pretty passionate about knowledge translation. And that's essentially what I'm talking about right now, which is how do we take the science and make sure that it gets out to those target populations that can Mm -hmm. really benefit from it in a way that maybe it ends up being... um, something clinicians can use. Maybe it's something that ends up on policy documents for how people uh, internationally um, would um, use different interventions for sexual concerns. So um, we use social media a lot. We've got a campaign going on right now called hashtag debunking desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we've got a website as well as we're pretty active on social media and we're using hashtag debunking desire to share tidbits of the science around sexual desire with the public so they can kind of get it straight from the scientists right into their own hands. Very cool. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I'm kind of a dork when it comes to all of this. So is there a, um, you're using the hashtag debunking desire, but is there a social media page that people can go to find you? Yeah, so um, we've, we've developed a website, which is debunkingdesire.com. 
Um, and oh, or is it .ca? Ooh, I'll have to double check. Debunking okay. Desire. Okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's .com. And there we link to our toolkit. And then on uh, social media, we use our, our research lab, which is um, at UBCSHR, stands for Sexual Health Research. And that's really where we're promoting all of the, the messages. We also created an infographic video together with patients. Um, so we took the science, gave it to a group of um, people who have lived experience of sexual problems. Um, they created the video and the voiceover. And then we're, we've been using the infographic video also as a way of sharing the science with the public. Oh, that's dot com. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Hey, just looking at the site too. Um, I, I mean, I could forward this to 10 clients right now. Um, how do you find, or do you find the, that, the connection between mindfulness and sexuality and trauma, like what is the, is there a, is there yeah. some, you know, when you, when you started talking about cancer patients, I, I thought you were going to start talking about sexual abuse yep. survivors or whatever, but um, what do you know about this w w aligned with trauma? Yeah, we, we've actually um, published a study using mindfulness for women with a history of sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, right. who were now in consensual, happy adult relationships. They wanted to have sex. Um, and every time they did, um, at the early signs of arousal, they would dissociate, essentially. Yeah. Their mind would escape and go elsewhere. And it's because that arousal had become so associated with physical trauma for them. Um, and Mindfulness makes a ton of sense in that situation mm. because um, essentially what we taught the women to do is from the very earliest signs of arousal in their body, they worked hard and they practiced to really stay with it. Mm -hmm. um, so they could sort of fend off um, their brain's tendency to dissociate right from the outset. And we found it to be incredibly powerful. So I use mindfulness a lot with trauma survivors. Um, also, you, you used a phrase at the top of the conversation about what mindfulness was and the word non-judgmental was in there. Can you repeat that? phrase yeah. again? Mm. Yeah. Present, present moment, non-judgmental awareness. Um, and the non-judgmental part. That's what's happening with trauma, right? These women are judging. Yeah. They're judging their experience. Yeah. Yeah. They're judging their experience. They might also be worrying about the outcome. So something we call catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. So what is going to happen if I fall apart during this encounter? What is going to happen if I maybe don't get aroused and my partner notices? So there's, there's quite a tendency definitely among trauma survivors, but I'd say among all, a lot of folks with sexual concerns to um, hyper focus or be hyper vigilant about this um, the, about the outcome, and they imagine the worst. Yeah, imagine. I it, yeah, I think you should start using the word disaster baiting. <laughs> disaster baiting. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, you're welcome to it. <laughs> you're welcome to it for nine ninety nine. I'll I'll pay. <laughs> everybody, I hope you're hanging in there. If you're anything like me, you barely know what day it is. I mean, it's crazy out there. And I know that for me, working with my therapist has been a huge help just to feel a little safer, a little saner. And toward that end, I wanted to remind you of our partnership with BetterHelp, that's Better H-E-L-P, which is an online platform designed to connect people with therapists in the area that can help them just talk through whatever's going on. They have done a great job. The more we learn about them, the more impressed I am. And the more we hear from our other listeners they uh, that are enjoying it, I feel really good about pointing you in that direction. And 
if you use our link, you get a 10% discount. Um, but more importantly, I think it's uh, just a healthy reminder that if you want somebody to talk to, if you just want to feel more connected, this is a great way for you to get better access to better help today. So check them out at our link. It's called Try Better Help. That's betterhelp.com slash MTR. And again, if you use that link, you get a 10% discount off your first month. It is a subscription base, which means that you have a sort of constant access rather than, than sort of a weekly appointment kind of thing. But I think, again, anything that helps you stay safe and stay sane has my vote. Okay, uh, back to the show. Something that just started coming to mind is just this idea of what it sounds like is what you're trying to do is connect women's brains more to their bodies, specifically their genitals or wherever they're feeling arousal. I guess there's a whole lot of different places where they could feel arousal. Um, But I keep thinking about sort of what Emily Nagoski refers to as the breaks of things that stress women out. And I keep thinking about how mindfulness and stress connect really well. What's that connection with stress, mindfulness and sex? Because there seems to be a pretty strong connection. Yeah, I've got a whole chapter on stress and sex and mindfulness in my book. Um, And, you know, it's exactly as you said, Laura, and stress um, directly impacts um, sexual function, sexual desire through two main avenues. One is psychologically. So when you're stressed, you might be hyper-focused on the negative parts of the interaction. So someone who is stressed might be noticing more oh, there's an, there's an odor and I don't like that odor or, oh, I'm not getting aroused enough or, oh, I'm noticing that part of my body that I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of through the psychological mechanism. There's also through the more physiological mechanism and people who have chronic stress, which um, arguably, arguably these days with social isolation, there's a lot of folks under yes. chronic stress. You have um, this kind of ongoing um, release of cortisol, the main stress hormone. Mm. Um, and that can absolutely wreak havoc on a lot of the important um, kind of neural systems that are important for sexual response. Yeah. Uh, so you, you've got this double whammy of, of stress uh, impacting sexual desire. The big studies that look at, um, you know, how important is stress for predicting sexual desire finds that stress is um, absolutely among the top items that, that yeah. affect desire. So, you know, even for your, for your listeners who might struggle with their own sexuality or maybe their providers who are helping people with sexuality, stress would be one of the first things that I look at. Mm-hmm. Okay is being able to reduce stress and using mindfulness techniques can help to reduce stress. Is that the yeah. idea? Yeah. The idea and the science absolutely supports that. And we, we just finished a study using mindfulness for low desire and found that yes, in addition to improving the kind of self reports or mental stress, it actually changed cortisol release in the body um, mm-hmm. over time and with practice, which is amazing. Okay. That's very cool. I just want to, um, I want to not emphasize, but, uh, recall, you, you, we're talking about women primarily, but there, is there, I mean, this men can take advantage of these skills too, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, un- unfortunately, because my, the cover of my book says for women, it yeah. means that everyone else who doesn't identify as women thinks it's not relevant for them. And that's, uh, ab- that's not true at all. Um, we've done studies with uh, prostate cancer survivors who have permanent erectile problems and mindfulness can be really, really helpful for helping them to expand what I call the buffet table of Mm -hmm. the kinds of sexual things that they do. And because of the non-judgment and compassion part of mindfulness, it, it, for the first time, they feel like they have permission to do that. So to explore other ways to be sexual that don't rely on an erection. 
Um, and then we've also done um, some studies with men who have difficulty getting erection with a partner, but have mm-hmm. no problems getting erection on their own. So something we called situate, situational erectile dysfunction um, and found that it also can be very helpful for, for those men. I'm going to steal expanding the sexual buffet table. Yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and put my back pocket. We're just going to plagiarize from each other. I love Perfect. it. Perfect. <laughs> um, Lord, do you have any really good uh, jokes? Oh, I, I have to get my 13 year old in here. He, he, uh, he makes up jokes and they're hilarious. Like yeah. they're, they are gut wrenching hilarious. I, I'm just a consumer of jokes, not a producer. No. I'm with right on. You. I, because I wanted to tell you this joke, which I, we tell dad joke. I tell dad jokes on the podcast all the time and we've already told this one, but you're going to like this one too. Did you hear about the chameleon that couldn't change color? No. He had a reptile dysfunction. <laughs> I love that. Oh, the urologists I work with are going to love that one too. Yeah. You got to cool. ease the tension a little bit. Yeah. Um, Lori, thank you so much for just joining us and dealing, dealing with us because Zach and I are just two unique characters. And I know that <laughs> we just start fly by the seat of our pants, but we're living life in Corona life. And, um, and really, really happy that you came on the podcast so that our listeners have this resource. We're really just wanting to serve them. And I know that this is going to speak to so many people. The title of the book again, it's better sex through mindfulness, how women and we learned women and men and people who don't identify as women or men um, can cultivate desire. And I am just really fascinated by all of this. I'm actually trying to figure out how I can become a student of yours. Um, I'm an organ. Is that too far to be a student of yours? Oh, I love Oregon. If I can come, if I can come to you, no problem, (laughs) but we'll have to wait for the current situation. Yes, we will. Thank you so much for joining. (laughs) My pleasure. My true, truly my pleasure. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Marriage Therapy Radio. If you're curious and you want to check out what Lori's been up to, head on over to Amazon. She has a book that's available. It's Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. And also don't forget the hashtag that she mentioned, Debunking Desire. Super cool. And also debunkingdesire.com. Thank you so much for all of your time and attention making this relationship better today than it was yesterday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.